The Dry Cleaner Cast presents Need to Know. Need to Know is a new quarterly podcast featuring conversations with security experts focused on the terrorism and intelligence stories dominating the headlines. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. This is Need to Know. Today we are joined by Fred Burton as part of our series of special podcasts on the Salisbury poisoning. Fred was the Deputy Chief of the Counterterrorism Division of the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service. He is currently the Vice President of Stratfor, which is a global intelligence firm tracking global security and international affairs. Fred will be sharing his views on the Salisbury poisoning and we will also be discussing the series of parcel bombings that have taken place in Austin, Texas. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you for listening. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Fred, welcome to Need to Know. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Just for listeners who may not be familiar with you, even though they should be if they listened to last month's episode, um, if they're not familiar with you and your work, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Be happy to. Uh, my name is Fred Burton, and I'm the Chief Security Officer here at Stratfor in Austin, Texas. We're a geopolitical analysis firm. And before I came to Stratfor, I was a special agent with the State Department and uh, specifically the deputy chief of the State Department's counterterrorism division. Now, as a former counterterrorism agent, what are your thoughts on the Salisbury poisoning? Well, I think it was a brilliant operation on the part of uh, the Russians uh, to carry out uh, that kind of targeted assassination, to be quite blunt. Uh, it 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 certainly resonates in the uh, counterintelligence and the counterterrorism space uh, because uh, if you look at uh, that kind of targeted killing using a nerve agent, uh, there are certainly counterterrorism ramifications for that. Uh, although the motive might have been uh, laser fixated on counterintelligence, so. Uh, it crosses across uh, it crosses that threshold a bridge into both uh, disciplines chris yeah now you've investigated cases in the past where the kgb were suspected of using poisons and nerve agents to kill their targets and i remember in your book that you mentioned that the kgb loves to use sort of chemical compounds to kill its adversaries can you just talk to us a little bit about some of these experiences of those cases that you've worked on? Oh, my goodness. Uh, the Russian uh, KGB, you know, now the uh, SVR and FSB, they have a long history of, of targeting mostly uh, defectors and double agents uh, going back for years, uh, not only uh, throughout Europe, but uh, in many cases around the world. And, and we certainly have a a very suspicious case in the Washington, D.C. area where uh, another um, foe of Putin uh, mysteriously was either beaten to death or fell down uh, some stairs uh, 
that was found dead in a hotel room. And, you know, that that case kind of never added up in my mind. I'm very familiar with that area in the hotel. So uh, when you look at uh, the, the Russian uh, use of uh, targeting uh, defectors and, and double agents, uh, to me, it's um, it's it's a study of assassination that um, you literally could 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 do a PhD thesis on, uh, just trying to make sense of that. And I think it's a tool of foreign policy, Chris. I I think they utilize uh, the, these targeted assassinations, very mindful of the signal and how it's going to resonate, uh, not only inside the United Kingdom. Uh, in your case, but but around the world, and and you can see the global response as a result of that, with the expulsion of uh, Russian intelligence officers literally around the globe. Yeah, yeah, it's been um, some historic expulsions, almost really, uh, with the levels of uh, people being expelled on mass. Certainly, I, I've never seen anything like it uh, in mass. Uh, I, uh, of course, on social media was uh, uh, strongly encouraging the the British FCO to respond. Uh, and, and it's really a double-edged sword on a practical problem, and, and I'll tell you why. Uh, you know, you uh, the UK, the US, uh, the Five Eyes do a real good job of databasing, monitoring, knowing who are the suspected Russian intelligence officers, or in many cases, known uh, intelligence officers. So you have them to, to use the, the, the jargon painted. Uh, you know who they are. You can watch them. You can monitor them. You can keep tabs on them. And so when you boot them out, uh, it begins again. Uh, you have to uh, go back and start uh, looking at others that, that might have come in, uh, for example, in the UK under diplomatic cover. And, and what you have seen, or at least I have seen over the years with the Russians, are their they're quite good at adapting to these kinds of things, meaning if you declare diplomats persona non grata as intelligence officers, they'll just do a course correction. They'll triangulate out. They'll go to other countries and do uh, third country operations. So, for example, uh, utilize other Western countries in Europe uh, to uh, springboard in into the UK. Uh, they'll uh, – you know, compartment and heavy up on their illegals operation, you know, very, very similar to what, you know, the TV show, The Americans here that's that's running inside the United States where they will have deep embeds into the fabric of society and then utilize, um, you know, business cover, uh, Russian front companies and travelers and so forth, academics. So um, Rest assured, their level of espionage uh, won't decrease uh, simply because uh, most of the the world has booted out uh, a few suspected intelligence officers. Yeah, and the the Russian intelligence services are sort of one of considered one of the best in the world, aren't they? Without a doubt, they are uh, as capable uh, as uh, the American CIA, the British MI6, uh, the Israeli Mossad. Uh, the Iranian MOIS, you know, the list is long. And in, in some ways, um, they really are very uh, brutal when it comes to targeting those that they have declared to be enemies of the state. And and I say that uh, uh, with um, 
knowledge of certainly how our intelligence services and the Western intelligence services work. Uh, you know, contrary to what's in the books or in the movies, uh, you you don't see the American CIA or the the British MI6 going out and and um, you know targeting uh, double agents and assassination operations or 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 poison kind of uh, of uh, bizarre plans that you would only read in in a thrilling thriller novel. So uh, it's a different kind of mindset uh, and. Uh, with that, um, it, it kind of puts that fear uh, into those that might be thinking of uh, working for the West or working for the Brits or working for the Americans. And so uh, part of their tactics are, are just to do that. So that resonates throughout the service. And that, that would make sense. I mean, because this poisoning has become a very public affair, even if it had been successful. Um I think, you know, there still would have been an investigation. Um, I don't, you know, these people weren't going to die and it looked like natural causes and it kind of just sort of, it sort of falls to the wayside. Um, so, yeah, it, it, a lot of people have been asking, well, why would Russia do it in this way? And so you, you feel it's sort of to send a message to sort of other would-be defectors and traitors who might be thinking about it or something. Bar none. I think it was a very strong signal uh, to... Uh those that have already defected, uh, but more importantly to those uh, agents that might still be in place working for uh, the West, uh, that uh, there's a price to be paid for treachery. And not only is that price uh, your own life, but um, we will reach out and touch your family. So uh, I, I, I think that's a very scary kind of uh, position, obviously, to be in uh, when – uh, you're you're on the fence. You're thinking about uh, betraying your country to begin with, and now you got to worry about uh, uh, the this kind of retribution. But uh, so I, I think that was the primary motive here. Uh, one, he was accessible. Uh, two, um, it was done just to signal to others that uh, you better think twice or else. Mm. With these kind of nerve agents, what kind of delivery systems would be used if they're, they're weaponized? I, I was reading something somewhere about there are reports of um, that the SVR developed some sort of vaping type device that can, you know, spray out things to people. Um, all sorts of, sort of theories have kind of come out about how it's being delivered. And on top of that, the police have come out and saying that the door handle might well have been a key part of the, what happened. What kind of delivery systems have you sort of come across in your time? Well, uh, and I think this one, uh, although we don't know specifically uh, what delivery mechanism was used yet in this case, I, I think that will eventually uh, come out at some point. Uh, uh, at times, uh, if you do have sources in place, uh, word will get back either through uh, MI6 or the CIA or, or someone uh, specifically. But uh, they probably have a Good working theory, meaning uh, the Novichok, um, as I understand it, is um, uh, ultra fine powder, and that um, it, you know once inhaled or ingested or absorbed through the skin, uh, it certainly can be deadly. So when you think of that in that context, and let's say it was placed on the doorknob, um, I initially thought that it might have been in some form of mist. Uh, or some sort of spray, you know, your simple spray bottles that, you know, you bring the nerve agent in, 
possibly through a diplomatic pouch. Uh, I would certainly not rule that out or through a uh, intelligence officer, courier, cutout of some sort uh, and um, mix the uh, nerve agent and then simply walk up and either uh, spray it on a doorknob or door handle or on the door in some capacity uh, would be to me the most uh, logical. Um, however, you certainly could think of uh, other methods of delivery to include you know, some form of uh, uh, envelope where you just sprinkle the powder uh, on the doorknob and, and so forth. Uh, you know, to me, I know that that's going to be a very interesting point to nail down just from an investigative perspective. Uh, the the other thing I would be honing in on, uh, and I'm sure, you know, knowing how capable and how good uh, um, Scotland Yard and MI5 are, uh, would be, you know, hopeful that you could find some sort of surveillance footage of even a snippet of someone, you know, approaching in the suspected time frame. And then, uh, trying to trying to rule in or out those that have uh, what we would call cover for action, meaning um, you know a, a delivery person, a, a package delivery, a um, you know some sort of person that that might blend into the neighborhood that you might not think twice about, but was in essence um, used to, to convey that to the scene. Uh, that's something I would be looking for for those kinds of, of personnel that would have either in a disguise or uh, that you could uh, either wittingly dupe into doing this or I guess you could also consider some sort of uh, unwitting soul in some capacity. Yeah. And if you if you were assigned this case yourself today, how would you go about investigating it? What would you be looking for? Well, the forensics uh, are certainly uh, the place to start. Uh, I would also hone heavily in to that window of time, uh, back off uh, an hour on each side of, of your timeline and, and hone in on your video surveillance leading up to the house uh, as far back as you could go to uh, from a distance perspective you know if you're looking at an old school map uh, figure out exactly where your surveillance cameras are uh, walk walk back the cat from that uh, I would also be requesting through the intelligence community I would work it up through the chain and get intelligence requirements sent to uh, all five eyes countries to uh, for their assessment uh, of what they think had happened, as well as um, a requirements request, we would call them, uh, for any Russian sources for information pertaining to this. Uh, I would also be laser focused on um, the travel of uh, Russian diplomatic couriers, uh, trying to timeline out when the last courier pouch came in. Um, I would be uh, reviewing uh, any and all surveillance tape and footage and and so forth in and around the Russian uh, embassy in London to see if there was unusual behavior, uh, unusual activity, you know, elevated, uh, you know, lights on, burning the midnight oil kind of activity, uh, old school surveillance log work. But there have been a lot of commentators expressing shock at the suggestion that the Russian government would be so bold to be behind this poisoning. Do you think it's far-fetched to believe that the Russian state is behind this? 
No, I think the Russian state did it. Uh, I think the Russian state uh, was behind the the, the previous uh, Polonium 210 assassination in London. Yeah, the Litvinenko killing. Yes, therefore there wasn't a lot of um, retribution or there wasn't uh, any kind of pound of flesh extracted uh, for that. So uh, I think they looked at that kind of case and said, well, we got away with it before. Who's to say we can't get away with it again? Now, uh, also, though, you know, how are you defining success, Chris? Meaning um, they're probably sitting around uh, SVR, FSB headquarters, uh, regardless of the reaction of the British government and others, and saying this was a a successful mission. Uh, You know, they did not uh, go forth with this uh, without knowing there would be some degree of blowback. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I fully believe uh, the Russian state uh, intelligence organs and perhaps even Putin himself believes this was a highly successful mission. Hmm. And how well do you think the Russian government have handled this? I think it's fascinating to watch, uh, you know, their lines come out of the Russian embassy in London about uh, pointing the finger to the British security services and some, uh, you know, there's the old phrase that we would use uh, from time to time in the intelligence business, you know, admit nothing, deny everything and make counter accusations. And I think that that's exactly what the Russian government is doing and, uh, you know, trying to turn the tables. Uh, uh, but I don't think they're going to be successful. I think the port, the, the court of public opinion uh, has already turned, uh, you know, against them on that. But uh, at the end of the day, I don't think they give a tinker's damn. Uh, I think they, they went into this operation with eyes wide open, uh, knowing that it would cause a kerfluffle, uh, but uh, still decided to do it. Yeah. And um, out, of, out of interest, what's the reaction been to this in the United States? Well, here at Stratfor, we certainly have followed it uh, intensely because of, um, you know, what could be the nation state attack on UK soil, to be blunt. Uh, but um, it's, it's gotten a, a large measure of press uh, here inside uh, the states on the activities. And then, of course, the, um, you know, the American response in concert with you know, um, uh, the world's response and just booting out Russian diplomats. And so uh, it's also rehashed uh, the suspicious death of uh, the Putin foe um, in inside the hotel in the Washington, D.C. area. Uh, I know this, if, if I was at the American FBI and, and if we have defectors in place here, you certainly are worried about them as well, which raises an also interesting challenge, I think, for Scotland Yard and MI5, Chris, is uh, the the others that you might have uh, under protection that are either known or unknown. Uh, this this places uh, a uh, protective security challenge for defectors that haven't been hit yet. So. You're worried about that taking place again. So there, there's a there's a broad um, uh, in the protective security business where I spend a fair amount of my time uh, as well. Uh, there's there's tremendous blowback here that that certainly resonates uh, as you look to safeguard other 
Russian defectors from the same thing happening to them. What kind of um, level of protection would be sort of adequate for those sort of individuals? Well, uh, it would be very discreet and low-key before... Uh, this incident and the moment that this incident happened, uh, you know, bureaucracies are uh, reactive for the most part, not proactive. So uh, there's going to be a knee jerk reaction to immediately uh, ramp up security for those that uh, um, you already have under your wing. Uh, you might take take them into protective custody. Uh, you might move them. Uh, you will enhance your uh, surveillance detection upon them. Uh, you're going to be looking, you're going to be relying heavily on the intelligence chatter to see uh, who else might have been looked at, which is the the kind of elephant in the room here just behind the scenes. I, I do want to mention this, Chris, is uh, if if I was also working this case, I would want to know, well, who else was looked at and we just don't know it. So that is the whodunit you know, it, it's kind of like when you have the the um, trial unfolding here in the states, the over the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida, and now all the testimony is coming out to say that well, uh, Disney, a Disney property was looked at first. So, you you look at this kind of case and say, okay, uh, Mr. Screepaw and his daughter were targeted here, uh, but uh, who else? was on the target list, who else perhaps was looked at first? So you're, you are going to want to figure that out pretty darn quickly. Uh, so that challenge becomes almost an analytical and a, what we would call a protective intelligence gap. You, you want to figure out uh, the others that might be next or the others that were uh, surveilled. I would be, I would be, um, Highly surprised, Chris, if others were not also looked at. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be a, a lot of uh, lot of work now for, I suppose, MI5 and Scotland Yard looking into this. Oh, without a doubt. I, and I have no doubt that was probably done within the first uh, week uh, once um, once this started coming together. But uh, And it's probably still being evaluated as we speak to try to figure out who else might have been under reconnaissance uh, um, uh, but uh, that's that's how you save lives going forward. Uh, you you learn uh, all you can about the modus operandi of this case. Uh, you elevate your intelligence collection around all things uh, Russia, SVR, and FSB, uh, and then you do threat assessments on your other defectors that you have in place, and. Um, and increase your surveillance detection around them. This may sound a silly question, but I'm sure there'll be some listeners who um, would be interested in this. Um, is there how do how do professional assassins operate? Sort of what level of surveillance and how long do they would they typically spend? If there is a typical time one spends on surveying a target? Well, it depends on the target. Uh, for example, uh, you take a group like um, Al Qaeda when they were carrying out some of their terrorist plots, uh, they would study targets for a long period of time uh, before they move forward. Now, uh, in these kinds of targeted assassinations uh, that are, uh, remember, you have the benefit of a in, a state intelligence service to help you. So uh, anything you can imagine that's in the open source 
is going to be at your disposal. So you're going to very quickly be able to do all your social media deep dives. You're going to be able to check uh, records for um, tax information. You're going to be able to determine residences and registrations on cars. Uh, then you're typically going to put out a surveillance team uh, to look at targets, many different targets, um, unless one is uh, readily identified early on by headquarters. Uh, and, and we don't know the answer to that question. You know, I again, I would say it's reasonable that others were also looked at, and for whatever reason, they chose to pick Screepall because maybe it was something as simple as uh, he was a little bit off the beaten path or the assessment team looked at him and said, you know, look, we can get in and out of here without pinging many videotape kind of uh, issues. So it could be something as simple as that. So, um, you know, you're operating under a lot of intelligence gaps at this point, not knowing that, but uh, it, it typically involves uh, big data scrapes that's easy to do when you're a, a state intelligence service. Uh, you can also uh, put boots on the ground to do uh, surveillance detection to watch. Uh, and then typically a, a hitman uh, is going to come in to just specifically do that and be out the, be out of the country in the same day. Yeah. So yeah. So the, the shooter or yeah, the hit person would just come in and out whilst everybody else, the support team would be around for a bit longer. Correct. Uh, he's going to ha he or she, uh, and let's not rule that out here. Uh, we don't know. It very well could be a she. Uh, you're going to have, um, uh, you know, a, a very robust targeting package that says uh, this is where the the uh, victim, the intended target, lives. Uh, this is going to be how we're going to do it, and uh, we need you to walk up to the door and 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 uh, spray this on and get out. So when you think about it on a simplistic level, it's not that, that much of a complicated kind of attack because uh, the, the benefit that a nerve agent or a, or a toxin or a poison does, much like we saw with the polonium-210 case before, is it affords you the ability to get out of Dodge, to get the heck out of town before someone, is, um, before someone uncovers exactly what took place. So it, let's say – and I'm just speculating here, if the decision was to use a firearm, uh, which is unusual in, in the UK, as you and I know, uh, you're going to have to get that shooter out quickly uh, because of the methodology of delivery. But if you're using uh, a toxin or a poison, uh, then um, you're going to be able to buy yourself some time to evade detection and get out of the country. Yeah, because I mean, if they did put on a door handle, um, they could have put that on at like sort of three or four in the morning. And then if the person, the target doesn't open the door to about midday, there's quite a significant period of time for you to get away from it. Absolutely. Uh, I would I would bet that the uh, assassin came in um, a day or two before, uh, did a final walkthrough, thought about it, uh, the, the method of delivery based on a briefing from a surveillance team. And then uh, acted and was probably back in uh, Mother Russia the same day. Before we, I'd, I'd like to have a look at the Austin parcel bombings. But before we do move on, are there any other thoughts on Salisbury poison that we haven't covered that's important to you? Well, uh, I, I hate to keep repeating this, but I think this is an important aspect that I've heard nobody talk about, Chris. And that's uh, 
what were the other targets? Uh, there's never ever just one. And uh, there's usually a tiered kind of target set. So uh, those are the kinds of questions that uh, need to be answered so we can protect the others and we can all learn from this uh, to try to keep other defectors alive. Yeah. Yeah. And the better we do that, then the more likely people are going to cooperate with our intelligence services. Absolutely. Excellent. Now, Fred, we, we follow each other on Twitter and I've seen that you've been following the Austin parcel bombing case. Um, sadly, in the UK, there hasn't been much coverage of it. But um, can you just talk us through what's been happening? Well, we had a uh, package bomber that uh, was at this stage uh, randomly leaving devices uh, in our city uh, in a very um, high tempo rate that was taking place uh, on the edges of of Austin, Texas, during a, a huge international festival we were having here called South by Southwest, and it has grown to extraordinarily large proportions. So you had the bulk of the police force drawn downtown, and then you had this package bomber striking around the city on the edges, you know, touching um, uh, areas, uh, you know, from a large uh, patch of demographics and um, economic uh, areas from lower to higher. And then uh, he made a, um, a mistake by um, mailing a package uh, that exploded at a, a FedEx uh, distribution center that was tracked back to a local um, FedEx drop-off point, uh, which enabled the um, FBI and the ATF uh, and the local police to to identify him pretty rapidly. And uh, as they were closing in on him, uh, he literally uh, detonated another bomb in his car and killed himself. And uh, we have um, all kinds of speculation swirling as to, you know, was this uh, uh, the work of just a, a, a lone mentally disturbed person uh, or was this uh, – Terrorism, you know, that's still being hotly debated here in the United States press and media over the motive uh, of what caused this. Uh, but at this stage, um, um, depending on who you talk to, it's either viewed as domestic terrorism or it's not. But I, I think the the randomness of this, Chris, was the the thing that pretty much terrorized our city. You know, his targeted actions uh, in in our city of Austin, Texas alone, um, just caused so much chaos and disruption here uh, because uh, he first was leaving bombs in the dead of the night on people's doorsteps, and then you would walk outside and find a package bomb on your door, and it was it was just uh, frightening and a lot of hysteria as a result of it. Were there any sort of patterns to who the victims were of his bombings? No, there were not. And that was one of the other interesting things that came out of this. Uh, you know, at first, um, uh, the, the first target was, uh, you know, an African-American. Uh, then there was a Hispanic victim. Uh, then uh, another target was in an upper middle class uh, white uh, Caucasian neighborhood uh, with just kids riding their bikes down the street. And it, it was just one of these kinds of uh, um, random, the, the randomness of this uh, was just the terrorizing part. And, 
and living and working here in the city, I could certainly say that this mad bomber did terrorize us and uh, it just captivated the American media for, um, you know, quite some time for a good 10 days to two weeks. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, so it was, it was a 10 day period that this was sort of taking place. It was, and uh, you know the the bomber, um, you know, came from what appears to be a a very good family, um, uh, and there there didn't appear to be any you know previous criminal history. Or uh, he left a uh, very uh, pointed uh, video uh, statement with motive, which the police have not released yet. So. Uh, we all are kind of waiting here in the States for more information to come out of exactly what he said. But uh, apparently in his um, in his uh, statement he left behind, which was recorded on the phone, uh, there, he, he, he justifies in his mind um, uh, why he went about carrying on these these bombings and identified himself as a psychopath. Uh, reportedly, uh, there was no political motivation for this, uh, but it's raised a lot of questions in the city um, from a transparency perspective as to, you know, we'll re- release the tape so we can make our own conclusion why this person decided to target these houses and these families and so forth. So it's uh, it's been quite controversial here, and it's still, it's still percolating along. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of... Um should we say, sort of debate and accusations in the media um, and, uh, you know, on social media about the way the press is treated. They, some people are sort of saying they're double standards because, you know, that were ISIS or something. They feel it would be treated in a different way to this guy, Mark Anthony Condit, who um, is a sort of white middle-class boy, as far as we know. Exactly. And um, those are the kind of um, accusations going around town here that I think everybody was kind of waiting for a claim of responsibility, whether that be from, you know, a, a international or domestic terrorist group, you know, because of the victims early on, a lot of the media was centered on, well, perhaps we have a, a, a white hate extremist that was targeting the black community. Um, and, and we just don't know, you know, when it comes to, you know, his specific motivation at this point. So, uh, it, I ex- expect this to be released, uh, at, at some point. Uh, you know, I think probably the police and the, uh, FBI is just, you know, wanting to buy some time from an investigative perspective, just, uh, so emotions kind of simmer down a bit, uh, before they release this videotape that he made and, and unseal a bunch of their forensic evidence surrounding the bombs. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of reminds me of two cases. I think in terms of the, the bombs themselves, it reminds me of the Unabomber. And then in terms of the, not sure what the motive is, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the Las Vegas tutor um, from last year. Well, I think, Chris, you raise a very good point uh, from a uh, modus operandi perspective. I, I know in, in some of the media interviews I did surrounding the case, um, you know, the, the motive behind the Las Vegas shooter is still not disclosed. Uh, and... We don't have a motive here. You had, although the shooter used a rifle and randomly killed, uh, this individual used bombs and was randomly killed, randomly killed people, but there hasn't been a motive identified. If so, it hasn't been disclosed. So from a psychological modeling perspective or behavioral profiling, uh, there was a lot of similarities to that. Uh, 
I remember vividly the Unabomber case um, because that happened on my watch when I was in Washington. And uh, the Unabomber um, mailed and uh, a lot of bombs around the country uh, to various locations and, and um, colleges and academics and so forth. And uh, to be quite honest, the only reason uh, he was ever caught was – uh, the uh, mind hunters down at the FBI decided to disclose a uh, manifesto that he had written. And his brother, the Unabomber's brother, recognized the handwriting and said, uh, you know, I think that's my crazy brother, Ted. And eventually Ted Kaczynski was tracked down to, you know, a remote cabin uh, out in the in the West and uh, arrested for his um, crimes. But uh you know, our, our bomber uh, stayed localized here, was very Austin-centric. You know, I thought all along that we had a bomber that knew our city well, uh, was into the ebb and flow of our city, knew our transportation routes. Uh, Texas is, is a huge state, as you can imagine, but, you know, Austin um, has uh, – is – you know, has just a few uh, roads uh, basically – uh, to come in and out of different parts of the city. So, uh, you know, I kind of believed early on in the case that this was someone that lived here and just knew our city well. And, uh, you know, that that proved to be true. Hmm. And he, I suppose he must have had some sort of mechanical knowledge better to successfully build these parcel bombs because, um, I mean, are they particularly easy to make? Well, uh, you know, I've been to those schools to make them and I've been to those schools to investigate the bombings. And, and surprisingly, it is fairly simple to make a bomb. Now, to get a bomb to work correctly each and every time is a bit of a challenge. So uh, a lot of us were befuddled uh, in this case early on because every bomb that he he dropped off actually worked. And and that's usually not the case. For example, uh, you know, the Times Square bomber, uh, that bomb malfunctioned. The Unabomber had devices that didn't work. So, uh, you know, this was someone that... Uh, practiced or was a, was very, very lucky. Now, uh, what we don't know is uh, exactly how he learned. That's one of the key points here that hasn't been disclosed. We, we don't know exactly how he learned how to make these bombs. There's a lot of speculation. It was just something as simple as the internet. Uh, there, there has been pretty good surveillance footage of him purchasing bomb supplies at your local electronics store. So, uh, you know, that explains how he got some of the components. Uh, he had ordered some off the internet, uh, but uh, there's, interestingly, uh, it just goes to show you uh, how um, things kind of come together or the dots are connected after a case. Uh, neighbors remember loud explosions or noises in the middle of the night that they attributed to, for example, transformers blowing uh, but in retrospect, uh, there's uh, speculation that he was actually going outside at night in his backyard, just blowing up the bombs to see if they would work. It's not very discreet, that is it? <laughs> no, no, almost, uh, almost asking to be caught uh, in many ways. But uh, it, it, he lived in a town uh, just north of our city uh, called Pflugerville. That's part of uh, the Austin metropolitan, for for lack of better words, and uh, it it is a tad bit rural, but not that rural. And 
you know, sleepy, quiet neighborhood at night, you would like to think if someone heard an explosion, they would have called the cops. Uh, but that doesn't appear to have happened. No. I mean, I suppose I grew up in the country. Um, I used to have um, I, I went through a gun phase in my sort of teens. I was throwing blank guns or um, air rifles. So I'm sure my neighbors heard lots of bangs. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose people get used to it. So I don't know if he had a history of firing guns or anything, did he? <laughs> Right. Well, here in Texas, there's certainly no shortage of guns. Uh, <laughs> they're they're everywhere and uh, certainly accessible. And you can walk into to you know any gun store and and do that. And you know the the, the lesson learned here for this kind of person is, uh, although we still have gaps on on what made him tick, is that if someone is committed to doing something like this, I'm sad to say. Uh, they're go- they can be successful, and um, so uh, he, in all probability, you know, learned to put these darn things together just on the internet. Yeah, and was he making them at home? Yes, yes. It appears that he was making them. He lived with two roommates. Uh, uh, his father actually owned the house that he was living in, and then he had two roommates and. Uh, as best we can tell, he was making the bombs in his room and, uh, neither one of his roommates knew anything about it. Although one of his roommates was grilled pretty heavily by the FBI as being a person of interest, but he's subsequently been let go. Uh, so, um, it appears that he acted alone. Yeah. Well, I'm sure we'll find out more in due course, but uh, thank you for that. Are there any other, before we finish up, actually, do you, are there any more thoughts on the uh, on the past bombing that we haven't covered? I think we pretty much covered the uh, Austin bomber. Still a lot of uh, unknown questions that hopefully will be answered over the next uh, week or so. Um, mm. And uh, we'll certainly know more uh, about perhaps what made uh, this, uh, this person want to target these uh, residences. Yeah. Well, Fred, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Where can listeners find out more about you and your work? Uh, Well, certainly uh, you could uh, follow us at uh, www.stratfor.com. S-T-R-A-T-F-O-R is our website. Uh, I'm on Twitter at at Fred underscore Burton, and uh, you'll find um, more information than you care to uh, on our website or on my Twitter account. Excellent. Well, look, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Like what we're doing? Connect with us on Twitter at DryCleanerCast. Support the show by becoming a DryCleanerCast Patreon subscriber today. Go to patreon.com slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com slash drycleanercast. Thanks for listening. This is Need to Know.